following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw, for our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Of infertility and miscarriage, um, it was really intense. We were unable to get pregnant, and when we did, even after fertility help, the pregnancies ended in loss. We did not know when it would end. It was a time of sadness and a really hard time. Um, during that time, friendships were really hard. I, um, I really struggled to connect with others at times. I struggled to come to church. I struggled to be around people a lot. Things like seeing, you know, babies or pregnant bellies. I found that really hard. I withdrew. In that time, I was defensive, angry. My heart was bruised. I got comments like, have you prayed? Um, pray more. And that was, that was tough because you, I felt like I was praying and, and, and there were comments like, Can, you know, have hope. And, like, I totally have hope. That's why this is so devastating. This, this is exactly why this is so hard. And, and wanting a good thing. I think I really struggled with the fact that I was, we were praying for a good thing and, and not allowed to have it just yet. It wasn't about the baby. I didn't just want someone to plonk a baby down in my lap. It was that I was being denied something good. I was being withheld something everyone else it looked like was getting. It was about having to wait, to not know the answer, to have an unknown future, to have to change expectations, having to surrender what I thought our life might look like. It really made me explore my faith, like I had to really ask myself, um, Sarah, if you're saying you believe in a good good God, then where are you at with this? Um, do you trust him? At the start, I, I didn't know many people who were going through the same thing. Then eventually I found one friend and that was really helpful, really lovely uh, to connect with one person. And then, and then slowly as, as I journeyed on, I did get to know other people. And then also eventually we set up a little prayer support group here at Shaw. And that was um, really neat as well to be able to uh, connect with other women and to be vulnerable with, with others who are going through maybe something similar, but also to be a part of their lives. I remember reading these verses from 2 Corinthians. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. That verse really spoke to me because um, I think it gave me something to do and it, I, I think I felt quite passionate about um, passing, kind of like passing it on. Like, if God has comforted us, how can I comfort others and maybe even help them comfort someone else. So there was this passing on-ness to it that I felt was really neat. So it would just be things like 
meeting up for coffee or praying for each other or giving flowers at a sad point. I didn't always know the right words to say. I had to ask the Holy Spirit to guide me. Sometimes it would be asking difficult questions like about marriage and intimacy or grief. It also would be things like maybe sharing or exchanging experiences about miscarriage and how it was um, painful or shocking. One of the things I asked God for was that I wouldn't lose sight of God's plan for me. That if being a mother was not going to be my path, He would remind me that I'm also a wife, a daughter, a friend, a colleague, and a woman walking with God. And that I had other interests and roles I could thrive in and that my life would be consisted of. One of my prayers um, for myself and for others going through difficult times was that we would still see all the other powerful and important things that God has for us, even as we were wading through difficult times. What a story. And Sarah, thank you for the vulnerability and sharing, sharing your story with us. Uh, a story that we often don't feel like we can share with other people. And uh, thank you too for the comments, uh, the honest comments about the pain, um, the comments that you heard from other people that stirred up more pain at times, uh, but also the friendships that helped. We all have stories of pain, don't we? Right here, everyone connecting today, we all have them. In fact, uh, a couple of weeks ago, we used the symbolic wailing wall over here to capture some of the the thorns that you're carrying. And I would imagine if we went to that wall and, and read some of the comments, which we're not going to be doing, but if, if we did, I would imagine there's a whole range of thorns. Uh, there's, there's things from, from short-term pain and long-term pain. There's various shapes and sizes. There's things from past and present. There's internal and external. And in many ways, all of that, that pain uh, is really captured here in the, in the messiness in our painting. It's just hard at times, isn't it? And uh, great to have uh, Nicola Warner. You know Nicola, she's part of the community here, and Nicola's going to be really doing the, the, the sermon with me, but in a visual way, uh, really capturing, uh, we hope, uh, the, the journey we're really on as we think about pain and suffering. Uh, often what it looks like and, and, and what we hope it can look like. Uh, as we really take some time to, to think about the point of your thorns. Uh, throughout the centuries, there's been a particular story that people have come back to time and time again as they thought about suffering. It's really, really graphically portrays in a story format the messiness of suffering. It's a story of a man who was probably the best man who ever lived and also who suffered more deeply than anyone who has ever lived. His name's Job. It's a story found in the Hebrew Scriptures. The story begins this way, by describing Job's happy and blessed life. There once was a man named Job who lived in the land of Uz. He was blameless, a man of complete integrity. He feared God and stayed away from evil. And if anyone can truly be called good, it's this guy, Job. And tuck that away in the back of your minds because it's going to come, handy, come in handy later in our story. Uh, notice here in the verse, his, his outer life and his inner life is above reproach. There's no spot, there's no wrinkles, there's no hidden areas of moral failure in Job's life. He has a very genuine relationship with God. 
We're also told that Job was incredibly blessed. Read here, he had seven sons and three daughters. You know, big family in the ancient world. There was a sign of massive blessing from God. He owned 7,000 sheep. It was a you know, huge farm back in the day. Uh, 3,000 camels is like the equivalent of a, of a large fleet that he has. Uh, 500 teams of oxen, 500 female donkeys, you know, a lot of farm machinery in the ancient world. He had many servants or employees. He was, in fact, it says, the richest person in the entire area. Job was a successful man. And again, in the ancient world, this is code of saying he was blessed by God. Everyone around him would understand that. But in one day, this good man's life came crashing down everywhere. I don't know if you've ever seen the demolition of a large building. You know, the, the dynamite's placed in, in the basement, and, and somebody, you know, hits that ignite button, and in, in just a few seconds, the whole building just like crashes into the, this pile of rubble. It's almost like the story, the, the image that, that's going on here as Job hears bad news after bad news after bad news after bad news all within a couple of minutes. We read this. Uh, one day when Job's sons and daughters were feasting at the oldest brother's house, a messenger arrived at Job's home with this news. Your oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them when the Sabians raided us. They stole all the animals. They killed all the farmhands. I'm the only one who escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger arrived with this news. The fire of God has fallen from heaven and burnt up all your sheep and all the shepherds. I'm the only one who's escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, a third messenger arrived with this news. Three bands of Chaldean raiders have stolen all your camels and killed your servants. I'm the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger arrived with this news. Your sons and daughters. Your sons and daughters were feasting in their oldest brother's home, and suddenly a powerful wind swept in from the wilderness. It hit the house on all sides. The house collapsed, and your children are dead. I'm the only one who escaped to tell you. Violent winds, violent raids, fire from heaven. It all came like one foul swoop in all directions. Within minutes, Job's blessed life has crumbled into a pile of rubble. Everything he held as precious, everything that he enjoyed was destroyed in, in just a matter of minutes. The best possible man has just had the worst possible day. And you know what? It got worse. We turn to the next chapter and we read, Satan struck Job with terrible boils from head to foot. And Job scraped his skin with a piece of broken pottery as he sat among the ashes. Job knew suffering. He knew what it was to lose 10 children, his business, his home, his career, his health. He's about to Learn what it is to lose a reputation and be rejected even when you've done nothing wrong. And while few people suffered to the degree that Job did, we can, as we kind of sit with the story, we, we suddenly go to our own stories of pain, the, the thorns that we have here in the Wailing Wall. And the question I, I want us to sit with today is, is this question, how do we actually help a person in suffering? Again, all of us have our thorns, and in this series, we want to help process those, but we also want to help you process how you help other people going through pain. Because all of us have friends or colleagues or family members or neighbors or, or church friends 
who are going through difficulties, who, who carry thorns right now, how do we help them? Well, the next 30 chapters or so of this book of Job shows us how his friends responded. And we're invited almost like to, to watch and, and, and learn and, and listen into the conversations they have and, and to really ask the question, does it help Job or does it hurt Job? And as we enter into the, the dialogue and kind of we watch the scene unfold, we, we're going to see the good, the bad, the ugly, and the very ugly of responses. And we see Job's friends really taking on five different roles as they seek to help Job, who's going through all this suffering. Out of all of the, the five roles they take on, there's only one of those roles that's good. The first role that Job's friends take on is that good role we want to emulate. It's the role of the friend, who is fully attentive, present, and caring. At the end of chapter 2, I love how these friends drop everything to come to Job's aid. We read, when three of Job's friends heard of the tragedy he had suffered, they, they got together, they traveled from their homes to comfort him and console him. And their names were Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. And when they saw Job from a distance, they scarcely recognized him. All this grief, all the suffering, the boils, everything. Wailing loudly, they tore their robes. They threw dust in the air over their heads to show their grief. They sat on the ground with him for seven days and nights. No one said a word to Job. For they saw that his suffering was too great for words. I love the way the, these three friends drop everything just to be with Job. They weep with him. They recognized his pain. And they sat there seven days, seven nights. And again, notice that last sentence. No one said a word to Job, for they saw that his suffering was too great for words. This is a friendship that we all need in moments of pain. It was 18 years ago this very month that Robin and I lost our firstborn son at birth. His name was uh, TJ or Toby Jack. And I remember the, the Saturday after we got home from the hospital, and we were just in grief, just shell-shocked. Uh, it was a Saturday morning, and our connect group, our small group, came around to our home, and they made copies for themselves, and they sat with us. And I remember a, a lot of awkwardness in, in the group as everybody was trying to work out what, what do we do and, and how, do we, how do we help. But what I remember about that time was just how a group came around just to be there, even in the awkwardness, just turning up, just allowing us to speak, to hear our story. And their presence had a profound comfort. It's hard to describe. I think the Apostle Paul had something similar to that. He, he talks about his own experience. Just before, you know, he talks about that thorn in the flesh that we looked at a couple of weeks ago. He says this, but God who comforts the downcast comforted us by the coming of Titus. It might almost like seem like a fleeting comment, but, but Paul's saying the way God comforts us is, is by sending people, is by sending a friend. In this case, it was Titus who showed up and helped Paul, who was going through a difficult time in his life. Our friends seem to help us sit with the, the, the mess that we're often experiencing and enduring. But let's face it, some cultures do this more instinctively and intuitively than others. Our Māori and Pacifica cultures, I've found, instinctively know how to kind of come to the aid of people who, are, who have these like thorns in the flesh, and they, they listen to stories and they reminisce through photos. 
Uh, Pākehā, Chinese, European cultures tend to be more private and, and sometimes like awkward as we try to process what's going on in that space. So you might become, well, how, how, what does it look like to be a good friend? I asked that question to a few people uh, just recently who I knew had gone through some of the worst case scenarios. Uh, they gave some simple advice to us. They said, uh, if it's the loss of somebody, uh, rather than send flowers, turn up with flowers. Be there. Another said, even better than taking flowers, take some fruit. They might already have like 20 bunches of flowers on their dining table anyway, so turn up with something else. Another says, if you turn up, please don't make it about yourself. Uh, realize that you may feel some discomfort or some awkwardness, but don't make the person worry about how awkward you might be feeling because it's really not about you. It's about them and you providing comfort for them. Continue to invite them to events that you're planning, another said. Don't make decisions on their behalf. And the bit of advice that came through again and again was this. Listen deeply. Or as one said, convey that we are fearlessly present with them. It's what I love about what Bildad, Eliphaz, and Zophar did at the beginning. They took on the role of friends, and they sat with Job without even saying a word, and it was then that they provided comfort. But <laughs> after seven days, they began to speak, and things went south. And there's like 30 chapters of speeches, many long speeches. We're not going to go through all of those chapters, which you can breathe a sigh of relief about. But, but these speeches begin with at least some degree of sensitivity, and then they kind of go, airy, they, they, they begin with kind of what's bad, and then they get ugly and really ugly. And, and what I want you to see as we just like touch some of these speeches is they had the right intent. They actually want to help this friend, Job, who's going through suffering. They want to help, but what they said didn't help. It actually brought more hurt to somebody already hurting. In fact, in the middle of the speeches, Job cries out, what miserable comforters you are. It's not helping. And so I want us to like look at this and go, well, what, what was it that they said or did that provided more hurt rather than help? As we think about, well, how do we help other people who are going through that hurt? The, the, the first role after friends, you know, the first role that they take on that's wrong is what I call the philosopher who gives their answer to the why question. You know, during the seven days, they've watched Job lament, and during these seven days, I guess they're sitting there going, I wonder why this has happened. Remember, Job's life has been divinely blessed, and within minutes, he lost his children, his business, his home, all back to back. Something's up, and then his health plummeted. You know, something's going on, and it's natural in those kind of moments to ask the why question. And it's okay for someone who's going through suffering to ask the why question. If that's you, I want to remind you, Jesus asked the why question when he's excruciating pain on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's natural to ask the why question. The problem comes, though, when we try to answer it. Anyone who has spent time with a suffering friend knows that there's a, like, something intuitive. There's like this basic instinct in all of us to investigate what's wrong, to pontificate over our reasons, to try to fix things for a friend. But when we take on the role of philosopher who gives our answer to the why question, it always goes badly. The, the problem is that we will get the answer wrong, badly wrong. 
We see this in Job's story. Everyone gets the wrong answer, and they all have a perspective, 30 chapters, but they all get it wrong. The truth behind Job's story is given to us in chapters 1 and 2. It's this interaction between God and Satan concerning Job, and it might not actually make you feel all that comfortable. probably raises a whole lot of questions, which I'm not going to answer them all, but this is what we read. One day, the members of the heavenly court came to present themselves before the Lord, and the accuser Satan came with them. Uh, The Lord asked Satan, have you noticed my servant Job? He's like the finest man in all the earth. He's blameless, a man of complete integrity. He fears God, stays away from evil. God is so proud of his boy Job. Satan replies to the Lord, yes, but Job has good reason to fear God. You always place a wall of protection around him and his home and his property. You've made him prosper and like everything he does. Uh, Look how rich he is. But reach out and take away everything he has and surely he will curse you to your face. All right, you may test him, the Lord said to Satan. Do whatever you want with everything he possesses, but don't harm him physically. And again, I realize all this, there's a whole lot of questions this will raise. Typically, the biblical authors don't give us all the answers that we would like to the questions that we have. I think what they want to do here, though, is, is let us know there's, there's an answer, there's a reason why Job's suffering, even though Job and his friends will never actually hear that answer. In this case, Satan accuses Job of only serving God because of what he gets out of the relationship. You know, he hisses, take it away, Job's going to curse you, God. Job's only in it for the benefits he gets. He doesn't love you, God. He only loves himself, and he's trying to use you to better himself. You're a means to an end, and I'll prove it to you. Make things unprofitable for him, and he'll, he'll drop you like a hot iron. So God allows Satan to test Job because God has such confidence in his boy Job. That he says a love in Job, and he wants that to be proven. How do you prove that normally? You know, let's say you initially fall in love with a person, and if you're honest about it, it's because of the assets the person has. It might be their good looks, it might be their connections. But as a relationship progresses, you begin to love the person for himself or herself alone. And when the assets go away, the looks, the connections, you really don't mind. But we call this like mature or genuine love. Of course, the only way to test a love like that is when hardship comes into your life. When something's taken away, you know, how will you respond? Is God simply a genie that's in it, you know, the way you, you're in it just for the genie effect? Now, this is often how it is for many of us. And isn't this how most of the things happen in our lives? We often don't know the reason. And even if we knew the reason behind the suffering, I don't think it would actually help. I wonder how much harm has probably been caused by people who've tried to answer the why question. How, how much harm might have come from people giving like soundbite answers or bumper sticker answers to suffering? You know, it's all for the best, we might say. It's, it's part of God's plan. God never sends more adversity than they can handle. Uh, we know God causes everything to work together for good. You know, good statements, true statements, but wouldn't it be more helpful to simply say, I'm so sorry this happened to you. I'm so sorry for your loss. Now, people don't need to hear our answer to the why question. They don't even need to hear that there is a reason. Typically, all this does is bring further confusion and hurt. You know, when we take on the role of philosopher, not only are we likely to get it wrong, 
we're also likely to bring more hurt and not help. If only Job's friends had stayed in that first role of friend and remained present and silent, they would have become agents of God's compassion. There's another role they take on. Unfortunately, it's the judge who blames the sufferer. When Job's first friend, Eliphaz, opens his mouth, he begins with what at first seems polite. He says, will you just be patient with me? Just Let me just, like, just say a word. Seems okay. And then he opens his mouth and he begins to accuse Job of doing some wrongdoing. Quite suddenly, he says, stop and think. Job, did the innocent die? When have the upright been destroyed? My experience shows that those who plant trouble and cultivate evil will harvest the same. Do you hear what the insinuation is he's got there? You must have sown something bad in your life somewhere, Job, and it's coming back. It's now growing, and you're getting what you deserve. In fact, they even start to invent charges against Job. They come up with these random comments that we know is untrue. They say, you must have refused water for the thirsty or food for the hungry. Or perhaps you send widows away empty-handed. You crush the hopes of orphans. They're like clutching at straws, trying to find something that Job has done wrong. And again, from the beginning of the story, we know Job is blameless. And they're saying this to a guy who's lost everything. Now, Phil Eliphaz was like subtle in his approach. Bildad, another friend, roars in like a theological bull. He says, does the Almighty twist what's right? Uh, your children must have sinned against him, so their punishment was well-deserved. <laughs> but if you pray to God and seek a favor from the Almighty, and if you're pure and live with integrity, he will surely rise up and restore your happy home. Which you can paraphrase. Let's cut to the chase, Job. God killed your 10 kids because he was sick to death of their sin. But if you pray and do right, you will have a happy home again. Unbelievable what people can say. And these are friends of Job. Now, I hope, and my guess is that none of us will roar in like a theological bull. At least I hope we don't. But oftentimes we might have more that like subtle approach where we're insinuating you must have done something bad. Remember, his, his friends are, are saying all this with the right intent. They believe they're right. They want to help Job. They just believe he's done something wrong. If he just repents, gets over it, things are going to go well for him. But it's a faulty theology. They believed if you're good, God will give you a good life. So if you're bad, God will ensure you suffer in your life. At first, Job must have been good because he was like really blessed. God prospered him, but now he must have sinned because things are going south for him. God must be punishing him. But I hope you realize not all of our problems are caused by my own sins or wrongdoing. Uh, yes, my, my personal sin can contribute to problems of suffering. And yes, we are all sinful at our core and needy at our core. But this story of Job teaches us there is such a thing as innocent suffering. As readers, we need to understand Job has not been punished. This is not corrective discipline of God upon his life. In fact, God is backing Job. So let me just say this. If you're going through pain right now, and if you've had people take on that role of judge, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for you. I want you to know, too, that Jesus knew what it was like to have people judge you wrongly. Remember the religious leaders accused Jesus of being demon-possessed? Uh, the crowd looked on Jesus as being cursed by God. We have a God who understands what it's like for people to judge unfairly. Oh, again, if only Job's friends had stayed in their lane of friend rather than take on the role of philosopher or judge.
There's another role that people can wrongly take on. I call it the competitor who compares your pain with theirs. Now, now this role doesn't actually come up in the story of Job, but Roland Foreman, the author of the book from which we've got our series, The Point of Your Thorns, he mentions this as a common way that people, well, to commonly respond. He, he calls the game, my pain is greater than your pain. He says the rules go something like this. Tell someone about your thorn or thorns, and then listen while they regale you with how much greater and more painful their thorn or catalog of thorns are. And then you pull out another pain card, and it just goes back and forth as you almost like compete over who has more pain and more thorns and more suffering in life right now. And if you're going through suffering and, and you share something about your pain with somebody else, the last thing you need is this like competition that goes on. All that ever does is kind of increase the feeling you have that no one really understands. It's incredible loneliness. No one gets you. No one really understands what, you, what it is you're going through. Because, because the truth of the situation is you can have two people going through the same set of circumstances, and yet they both process it so differently. In fact, a friend of mine once said, the most important thing we need to know about a person is we don't know the most important thing about a person. We don't know what's going on behind the scenes. We don't know their past. We don't know their background. We don't know their, their, their makeup, their DNA, the, the way they respond to things. So, so two people can go through the same experience. One actually feels it's, it's, it's okay. The other person is a devastating loss, devastating thorn of grief. It's true that our pain does activate something in us where we want to comfort. It's called empathy. But people don't need to hear all the details of what you've gone through as well. They just need you to show up and be a friend, bringing presence and comfort. There's one other role that we wrongly take on. I think this one's especially true in Christian communities. It's what I call the divine defender. The divine defender who comes to the rescue of God's reputation. You see, Job knew that he was innocent, but he also had the same theology that his friends had. So again, if you're good, God's going to give you a good life. If you're bad, God will cause you to, to suffer. Because Job realizes he's innocent, he's done nothing deserving of this, his conclusion's different to his friends. Well, since I'm suffering and I'm good, God must be acting unfairly. And so Job calls God to account. And he demands that God defend himself in a public courtroom. In effect, he says, I know better than you, God, how to run your universe. He makes all sorts of, I guess what we would call arrogant, bold statements. And, and Job's friends hear all this, and they instinctively jump to the defense of God. It's understandable, isn't it? We love God. They love God. You, we hate people saying things about God that aren't true or correct. So they jump to defend God. It's understandable. Nobody wants Nasty things to be said about God. But what we need to appreciate is that it's natural and normal amidst grief and pain to say things. And sometimes those things aren't even correct. So how does God respond to the types of things that Job has said? Well, Job's friends have taken on all these horrid roles. And during that whole process, God has been doing what a good friend does. He's been fully attentive and he's been listening. And when God finally speaks after like 30 plus chapters, he gives Job a greater revelation of himself. 
that moves Job to awe at who God is. He asked Job a bunch of questions. Job, where does light come from? Where does darkness come from? Do you know how we get it? Do you know where it goes? Surely you know, Job. Uh, who, who sends rain to, to satisfy the parched ground and make the tender grass spring up? Uh, Job, Job why, why are the flowers so bright? Where does color even come from? Where does beauty come from, Job? And question after question brings Job to, the, to this greater awareness, greater appreciation of who God is. See, Job and his friends have begun to look at the, at, at the mess of Job's life, trying to figure it all out and why it's happened, and God steps in, and God just reveals himself. And suddenly, Job is just like in awe at the beauty and majesty of God. Job's never told the answer to the why question. Uh, the, the mess is still in the background, but Job begins to see the, 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 the beauty and the awe of God. He comes to be more aware of, of who God is and the, and the presence of God in his life all around him in, the, in this beautiful way. And Job comes to a profound love and trust in God simply because of who God is, not from what he gets out of God. He sees God as simply amazing. What about Job's friends? Well, his friends expect God to step in and condemn, God, uh, condemn Job. But instead, God vindicates Job, and he puts Job's friends in their place. He says, after the Lord had finished speaking to Job, he said to Eliphaz, I'm angry with you and your two friends, for you have not spoken accurately about me as my servant Job has, which I find like the strangest thing for God to say. After all, if you kind of like follow the story, Job has said some things that are straight out wrong. He's cursed the day he was born. He's challenged God's wisdom. He's cried out. He's complained bitterly. He's expressed deep doubts. He seems to really not convey a deep faith at all in God. But God stands with his man. He stands with Job. You see, God is big enough to handle the complaints. And God doesn't need you or me to defend him, even when somebody in pain raises all sorts of questions and makes all sorts of insinuations. He just wants us to be friends of the person who's suffering. Yes, Job's prayers were heated, but in the heated prayers, he was still praying to God. Uh, yes, he complained, but in the complaint, he was still complaining to God. Uh, yes, he doubted, but in those doubts, he was still doubting to God. And the whole time Job was looking to God, and God loves that. And it's right in that moment that we find beauty amidst the mess. God delights when people look to him amidst the mess that they feel and face. So how do we help and not hurt people in pain? Because again, my guess is that we all have a colleague, a family member, a friend, a neighbor, someone in your small group somebody around you who's going through pain right now, there's thorns that they're carrying, and it's tough. And I believe God has placed you right where you are in that relationship, and he asks and he invites you simply to be a friend. So what does a friend do? Proverbs says a friend loves at all times. A brother is born for times of, say it, adversity. A real friend sticks closer than a brother. If you're unsure what to do, my advice is simply ask yourself, what, what would a good friend do right now? How might I be the friend 
that this person needs? What, what would I want if the situation was turned around? You know, as we finish, I, I reckon it's appropriate to give Job the chance to say what he would do if he and his friends could swap places. He says this in chapter 16. You know, I could say the same things if you were in my place. I could spout off criticism. I could shake my head at you. But if it were me, I would encourage you. I would try to take away your grief. In other words, Job says, I could take on, I, I could take on the role of the philosopher who, who gives the answer to the why question. I could take on the role of the judge who blames the sufferer. I, I could take on the role of the competitor who comp- compares your pain with theirs. And I could take on that role of divine defender who comes to the rescue of God's reputation. But instead, Job says, instead, I would be the friend, the friend who is fully attentive, present, and caring. And that is the friend we all need when we're suffering. And that's the friend we all need to be for each other. Well, our painting, it began as a mess. But it's not like that now. And I, I, wonder, I wonder how God might want to use you and me to bring his strokes to the messiness that someone's experiencing. And I wonder if God might want to use your friendship as a way to help someone see that God's present and that God can do something and somehow there's beauty and people start to see God right even amidst the mess and the pain. And perhaps just perhaps through simple friendship, God is able to grow something new and different. You know, each week we have some special cards designed for this series. As we take communion shortly, there's some cards at the table, and we want you to take those cards, or one or two of those cards. And it's not to, about filling that out today. It's about taking that card home with you and thinking about, God, who can I pass that card to? What, what words could I write down as an encouragement to someone going through pain? And send it. Or better still, Invite them for a coffee or go around to their home with some flowers or maybe some fruit. Just be there as a way to encourage them. Wonder if we can pause right now and just ask God, God, how would you want to use me to help people see that you're present amidst the pain and the mess? How can I be a friend to somebody right now? Let's pause and let's pray as we think about next steps. And as we prepare for communion. Our Father, thank you that you show us what it is to be a good friend, to be present, and to listen. Help us to become like you and to bring your comfort and your love and your hopeful presence to others. Help us to turn up. Help us to step in. And pray that by your Spirit, you would right now be bringing people to mind or that person to mind where you want to use us to bring your comforting presence in somebody's life, in somebody's pain, 
to help them deal and process that thorn that they're carrying. And thank you that when we talk to you, we're talking to one who understands all about pain. And as we take communion, we remember exactly that. How your son Jesus, like Job, became homeless. How your son Jesus, like Job, was criticized. How Jesus, much like Job, understood physical pain and relational pain. He lost everything, gave up everything. And we thank you that in the case of your son Jesus, he proactively stepped in and endured the pain in order to bring hope and beauty to our lives and to our world. Oh, thank you, Jesus. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your sacrifice. Thank you for enduring the pain, taking on that crown of thorns yourself so that we can find beauty amidst the ashes. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we love you. We ask that you would use us to bring your comfort to a hurting world around us. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources or to donate to our teaching resource ministry or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.